All right. Hi, everyone. I'm so glad to be with you. Uh, I have a, I'm going to, um, I don't want to go over my time, but I have a bunch of stuff to tell you. A bunch of, like, housekeeping. Hey, we, uh, my whole family's here, and so I want to acknowledge that and thank them especially for being here. That's um, my husband Jonathan is right there. The little boy who he's holding is our son Gus. Then we have Rain, who's 12, and Flannery, who's nine. I, um, like a lot of writers and, um, and preacher types, I, I speak a lot and have to leave them. It's always very sad, and I go to, you know, wherever. Can I think the last place I was at was Kansas. But Kansas or Seattle or New York or Boston or whatever to go speak. And so I'm often leaving them behind. And I, it's hard for me and it's um, sad for them. It's harder for me, I think. But uh, um, it might be hardest for my husband specifically. But um, we're only three and a half hours from home, so I asked, can I bring him up with me? And uh, so, because we just don't get to do this together much. So my family's here. Say hello to them. I'm very grateful for them being here. Um, and uh, my husband is also an Anglican priest, and so my kids are double PKs. Both their parents are pastors. So uh, it's actually, without kidding, it is, it, it's, it's a burden, so you should pray for them extra, I think. And um, they are extra awesome kids, and you should pray for them. Um, but there's also, we have a three-year-old with us, and so if you, they may get up and leave in the middle of my talk, it's not like a protest, it's just, you know, it might be a protest that it's like, there's not enough, there's not enough Play-Doh and trucks involved in this talk. The second thing I need to say is um, I like to have a glass of water and start in, in case I start coughing. We um, scoured the back, and this is literally the only glass we could find. And so um, it's going to look like I'm drinking. <laughs> My husband was like, that's an interesting choice, like drinking during your talk. Like, just why wait? Um, and... Uh, I've, I've never actually drunk during a talk before, and this is water. And I just need you to know that, in case you were concerned, there's a lot of reasons to be concerned about me, but I'm not actually drinking during my talk. Um, so, oh, and this, this is more fun. I'll just pour it in the wine glass. Just, just say, everyone write it. You can just take an Instagram picture with me. Doing this and then just no explanation, make everyone wonder, like, whisper, whisper, don't invite her. Um, all right, I think that's all. I'm very, very happy to be here with you guys. I'm going to begin with a short prayer and then let's jump right in. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you. Our Lord, my, our Lord, our rock, our redeemer. Lord, you have drawn us together tonight. You know us by name. We are here because we long to know you. We ask, Lord, that you would meet us, that you would guide us, that you would send forth your light and your truth. You are what we hunger for. You are the longing of our souls. 
Thank you that you meet us, that you come after us. In your name, amen. All right. So this first talk that I'm giving is going to be a lot about um, from my book, Prayer in the Night. So if you have read that, that um, this is going to be some review from, for you. And, um, you know, I'm sorry. Uh, or maybe it's cool. It's like seeing the movie of the book you read. This is what's happening. But, um, but uh, a lot of my talk is gonna sort of focus on that. So I just wanna set the stage that um, I wrote Prayer in the Night after a hard year in my life. It, about, it was uh, about a year and a half after the year 2017. And in 2017, um, we moved across the country from uh, sunny Austin, Texas to less sunny Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, which is a great, great town. I love Pittsburgh, but um, it was a hard move. And then um, a week later, after we moved, my father back in Texas passed away. Um, I had a ticket bought to come home for his, um, for his birthday, and I used it to come home for his funeral. I, we found out uh, very joyfully the next week that I was pregnant, and three weeks later, we miscarried. And then we got pregnant again, um, and uh, had kind of a long, hard, difficult pregnancy where I was in and out of the hospital. And then in July of that year, we lost, um, in utero, we lost my, our baby, who is a son. We lost our son. So it was about six months of hard things. And um, I just, and it, so I began this book kind of in the middle of a hard year. And after that six months, I was just tired. I was just exhausted, kind of spiritually. And I wanted to be clear, like, the things that I suffered weren't unheard of. Um, in fact, they're really common. Like, if, if you live long enough, you will lose a parent um, or both of your parents. If one in four pregnancies is in miscarriage, um, a lot of us have moved and felt lonely or struggled with that. Um, or even if you've stayed in the same place, have felt friendless. Uh, a lot of us um, have dealt with disappointment and disorientation and doubt and struggles with our faith. These are common things. So um, there's a lot of reasons when I first got the idea for this book that I didn't want to write it and told God, like, I don't think that this is a good idea. Um, you know, he needs to hear that from me. <laughs> I don't think you know what you're doing. Uh, but, um, but one of the reasons is there's kind of a whole genre of Christian literature um, that, that's sort of about the worst thing that has ever happened to someone. And these are really, really important books. I have, I have specific books I could even recommend for like catastrophic suffering, the loss of a child or terminal illness or... Um, profound, profound abuse. Um, but this wasn't that. I, I felt like um, this was deeply painful, but that it was ordinary suffering in a way. A lot in a compact amount of time, but a lot of what we walk through. I've had a pretty good life, and I felt like, Lord, um, my life's too good to write a book about pain. 
which is precisely part of my problem and why I needed to write about pain. Because I think if we're only waiting to meet Jesus in the most catastrophic moments of suffering and missing like the profound, ordinary suffering that all of us walk through every year of our life, there's actually all of these places that, in a, that God longs to meet us that we're missing because we're waiting, to, we're waiting to sort of meet him where we think it's worse or someone has it worse than us. And we're, we, we avoid our own grief. And through that, we avoid God and meeting God in that place of suffering. So going back to 2017, I was tired. I was struggling. I didn't know how to pray. Um, and I was asking questions about sort of how to continue in the way of Jesus in the midst of pain and in the midst of darkness. And I felt like I didn't know how to talk to God. I didn't know how to pray anymore. And part of that was that there were like, there were too many questions. There was too much that sort of remained unanswered in prayer. Um, but I think that a part of that was in a new way um, I didn't know how to trust God. When I was uh, in college many, many years ago, um, my pastor preached a sermon, his name was Hunter, and it was, it was about three months after um, a three-year-old boy had uh, passed away by drowning in our congregation. It was a horrible time for our congregation, and there was a lot of grief. And I remember, I don't remember very much about what he said in the sermon, but I remember he said this several times. He said, we can't trust God to keep bad things from happening to us. Which is evident if you've lived on the planet, right? Like, certainly God protects us all the time from tragedy. We, we would probably break into worship if we knew even just today what we were rescued from. And yet... God does not stop all bad things from happening to us. And we know this. But as a you know, sophomore, junior in college sitting there, it was this moment of like, I didn't realize that we can say that out loud. I thought that was in the fine print of the Christian life. And so I struggled with it. So I asked if this is the case, if you can't trust God to keep bad things from happening, how do you trust God at all? And I, um, in this book, another reason that I, I wasn't sure I could write this book is that question is in the second chapter. If you can't trust God to keep, so I'm writing this book and I write pretty much every day, I mean, every work day um, while I'm working on a book. And I wrote that question. So if you can't trust God to keep bad things from happening to you, how do you trust God at all? And I stopped writing because I didn't have an answer. And I sat there and I closed my computer and I walked away and I, I didn't come back for over a week. Because I said, I don't have an answer to the question. I don't have anything else to write. I don't know. And I'm under contract. I'm only like one chapter in. <laughs> and the rest of the next two years were me sort of like writing my way 
through that struggle, writing 80,000 words and kind of paring it down to 40,000. Because the question that I could not answer was the very question God wouldn't let me escape. It was, I could not pass go until I got, until I faced the reality that I didn't know how to trust a God that didn't keep bad things from happening to me and to those I love. So to be clear at this time, I had finished seminary, I was ordained at that point, so I could have given a theological answer. I had read books on this, but it's just that the answer seemed deeply unsatisfying to me. It didn't seem to satisfy the, um, it, was, it was emotionally unsatisfying to me. Because the question um, I was asking was not merely a philosophical question, right? The, the word that we use for this in theological circles is theodicy. And um, that's how theologians and philosophers kind of deal with the logical dilemma the philosophical and theological dilemma of how God can be all powerful and all good even as horrible things regularly happen in the world. But theodicy, and it's super important that we understand this, names something more profound than a question that like kind of keeps theologians in business. It often represents a crisis of faith that comes from the, an encounter with suffering. Theodicy is not kind of a cold philosophical conundrum. It's the engine of doubt for many of us. It can sometimes kind of wither belief altogether. A Barna survey just in the last few years showed that the most commonly stated reason for unbelief for leaving the church among millennials and Gen Zers was that they, and this is a quote, have a hard time believing that a good God would allow so much evil or suffering in the world. This is an increasingly common struggle. More and more young people voice frustration and confusion about theodicy than have in the last several generations. So that's like higher numbers than you see among Gen Xers and boomers walk away from faith because of this particular question specifically. So this can make us anxious, particularly if you are like church folk. We want to give people answers. Um, and, and so we can sort of like avoid this question. Um, but we aren't going to be able to give people an answer to make their suffering okay, or to tie it in a bow, or to explain to them why there's disappointment and pain and grief and the suffering of children and genocide and make that somehow okay or make that somehow satisfactory to them. We can't give an answer that will make this go away, but we can be honest with them about who God is in the middle of their questions and in the middle of the struggle. We have to sort of look at this head on. Ultimately, theodicy is not like this um, algebra equation that we need to solve for x. 
I talk about it in the book as more like this primordial scream. It's this protest from the depth of the human heart that, God, where are you? Is anyone watching out for us? Why do you allow this evil, this heartbreak, this suffering? In the book, I talk about, I, I say that the Odyssey is an existential wrestling match between the reality of our vulnerability and a hope for a God that can be trusted. Because at the end of the day, we don't want an answer. We want action. We want God to act. We want action on the part of God. We want God to set things right. But God hasn't set all things right yet. We live in this, what theologians call, in this time of already not yet, right? This meantime, this in-between time. And in this meantime, the problem of evil is, um, to quote Flannery O'Connor, she says that the problem of evil or, or theodicy, this is what we're talking about, this question of how can God be good and bad things happen in the world? She said, um, that the problem of evil or the problem of pain is not a problem to be solved, but a mystery to be endured. So how do we continue to endure this mystery? Where we hold with complete honesty and admit human vulnerability in one hand, and we hold also the hope of God and God's goodness in the other. Sometimes churches can respond to having to endure this mystery in ways that are not particularly helpful. On the one hand, they can kind of minimize the darkness, where they seem like overly chipper about everything. This is like, yay, go Jesus, churches. Often the heart of that is trying to kind of focus on the good and on the resurrection, um, but ignoring the power of death always inevitably ends up belittling the resurrection and belittling the hope we have. We end up with a Christianity that has trite answers, that gives kind of pat or shallow responses to suffering and the brokenness in the world. Some of the most inane and cruel, sentimental things that I have heard said has been at Christian funerals. Right? Folks that do not want to admit that things really are not the way they ought to be, that things really are broken. Another unhelpful way that the church can handle this is to adopt um, subtle or sometimes not so subtle kind of prosperity gospel, where they say if you have enough faith or if you do the right thing, then things will go well for you that we can sort of defeat darkness by being holy enough or righteous enough. When I was going through all of this in 2017, I was struggling with God and how God can be good. And my friend, um, I quote this in the book and I just say he's a leader, but it's Andy Crouch in case any of you guys know him. My friend Andy said to me, um, you know, we all kind of believe the prosperity gospel, don't we? We expect God to make our life work out, and that if we do our part, he sort of has to make things go well for us. 
So for most of us, when you hear that, you, we don't subscribe to the prosperity gospel out loud. I mean, you're like, no, of course not. I don't, those, I'm not like on Christian radio telling people if they send me $5, they'll get 10 from God or something. But we can try it tonight if you want. <laughs> give me five bucks. <laughs> God could give you 10. Um, it's possible. Um, but it, it kind of gets into us. It's kind of the American way, right? And if you're thinking, no, not me, let's kind of do some quick experiments. Okay, picture with me, you can close your eyes or not, can the, the worst thing that can happen happening, whatever that is for you, and that's gonna be different for each of us. The thing that is kind of, the thing that you're afraid of. Picture that happening. Give yourself a second to think of what your first sort of reaction would be, your first thoughts. And I'm sure a lot of reactions would come up. Grief, anger, disappointment, sorrow, fear. But among those, I wonder, do you think, if only I would have blank. If only I would have prayed more, or if I was a better parent, or if I was a better pastor, or a student, or a Christian, then this thing wouldn't have happened. And if you think something like that, it's really understandable, but it shows that at some level we believe that if we kind of do the right things, then no bad things will happen to us, or the worst won't happen to us at least. So that, that one doesn't always get me, but this one does. So do you kind of, in your daily life, if you look at kind of how you live on like an ordinary Wednesday, do you notice ways, do you catch yourself believing that if you can just kind of work hard enough and do the right things and be faithful, that you can keep your life intact? that you can sort of plan your way to a happy existence. This is like why I have, like financial planners thrive on this, right? If we make all the right decisions, we can kind of plan our way to a happy existence. I catch myself believing that. I think, I do this all the time. I think that if I can kind of scissor hold my life together to make it work, that, um, that I can like, keep myself from suffering. I can keep my children from suffering. And it shows that sort of I think that, um, that my biggest priority in life ought to be keeping myself from suffering, keeping my children from suffering, that I can sort of engineer my life and engineer our lives together to avoid suffering. And I have this sort of gut level assumption that God should be my ally in that project. Or at least that I could sort of use him or manipulate him to make that project happen. Use him and manipulate him to take all the right steps to make my life work so that I and the people I love don't suffer. I have a friend, we'll call her Tina, that's not actually her name. Um, 
but I'm going to, her story, I'm going to mention it because it kind of shows that this sort of seeps down this faulty thinking, the prosperity gospel that, that we sort of accidentally pick up seeps down in the way we do ministry, the way we present the gospel to people. So um, this friend, she walked away from the church, and when she um, talked to me about why what she said is, I did everything right. I was a virgin when I got married in my 20s. I trusted God. I prayed. I read the Bible. I, she served the poor. She said, I believed all the right things. But in my late 20s and her late 20s, her life fell apart. And she ended up getting a divorce. And she said to me um, that she realized, she said, I realized that I was promised that if I did all the right stuff and followed Jesus and married a Christian man, that my life would work out. And it didn't. And I have met so many people like this. We sell them Jesus by telling them that Jesus will make them feel fulfilled or make them have happy lives and good marriages and well-adjusted children, or that they'll feel like their life is constantly full of meaning and that this is the greatest way to live. And we are making atheists because we are selling them God under false pretenses. And when those pretenses prove false because they are false, then they say that the whole story of the gospel isn't true. And that we're sort of setting people up. I want to say specifically we're kind of setting youth up to walk away from faith because we're not being honest with them about what this is, about what God promises. We so easily slide into selling them the social benefits of Christianity or like the internal good feelings of Christianity, when what we're called to do is to introduce people to reality, reality with a capital R. So what is that? I have no idea what time it is or how much time I have. Um, Reality is creation, fall, redemption, consummation, right? We're made for a world that is whole, that is intact, and we are wrecked by the fall. And we know this reality from an early age, that things are not right, that we are not right. But redemption came in Jesus, and we await for him to set all things right and to make all things new, not just sort of us as individuals or individual souls, but all things new. So we talk about the reality of brokenness in the church. We ought to anyway. We talk about sadness and sorrow of the world, but also the reality that we can know God, a God who has lived and died and suffered and has risen. I tell the story in the book, but I have a friend um, named Julie, and her story ended up helping me a lot as I was sort of wrestling through how to kind of 
how to answer this question of how do I trust God in the midst of this. My friend, um, her son was having surgery. And um, before, as they were wheeling her son back to the OR, she turned to her husband and said, we have to decide right now if God is good. Because if we wait for the results of this surgery to decide that, then we will always keep God on trial. We have to decide before we know if our son's gonna be okay, whether or not God is good. That can't be the criteria by which we judge God. So then and there, she said, we have to decide if God is good right now. But how does she decide, right? She couldn't sort of base it on what was gonna happen to her son, but she also couldn't base it on kind of the total amount of good in the world versus the total amount of evil. The evidence is inconclusive, right? We, in the book, I'm like, you can um, say, like, I look at this, like, swarm of butterflies flying, you know, I just, we just saw this, um, migrating to the south. But it's like, and I raise you Lyme disease, right? It becomes this constant kind of poker game of, of the evil and good in the world and figuring out what is more and, and if you can trust God in the midst of that, it, it becomes a lot of a question about privilege and where you sit and if you've suffered and how much. And it, the evidence is inconclusive, right? Francis Spufford in his book, Unapologetic, which I really love, he says, we don't have an argument that solves the problem of the cruel world, but we have a story the Catechism of the Catholic Church, I'm gonna quote the Catholics tonight, says there's not a single aspect of the Christian message that is not in part an answer to the question of evil. It takes the whole story. It takes the whole story of scripture, the whole story of creation, fall, redemption, consummation, to even hint at something like a response to the deep, deep longing of our heart represented by this question of God, where are you? And how do we trust you in the midst of pain? It takes the whole story, part of which hasn't even happened yet, to be the final response to this question, this question of evil. So my friend decided to trust God even when she didn't know whether bad things would happen to her son. But it wasn't just kind of a leap in the dark or an arbitrary decision. It certainly wasn't like a stoicism or a screwing down of her will. She looked not to her moment in the OR waiting for her son. Instead, she looked to the story of the gospel specifically at the life of Jesus. The church has always had to endure this mystery. We're not the first generation to notice that this is a tension, right? But the church has sort of left this chord humming in dissonance. It has allowed this tension because it proclaims that only God himself can sound the final note 
can resolve this tension, resolve this cord. Our trust that God is good is not that God took away our vulnerability, took away the vulnerability of those we love, but that he entered into it. Divinity has entered into the fullness of human vulnerability in actual history. And because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, we believe that ultimately death will be defeated. So we look to the story to ground our endurance in this mystery. So what is the promise of God in suffering? It's not that we won't have suffering. It's not that we won't hurt. It's not that if you follow Jesus close enough, you can avoid bad things happening to you. It's instead that we can have eternal life. And I want to be really, um, it's really important that you hear this, because when people hear me say this, they think I'm talking about heaven, and I'm not talking about heaven at all in saying that. I'm talking about the way the scriptures define eternal life. In John 17, Jesus prays for us before his death, and he says this is how he defines eternal life. He said, this is life eternal, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So this is not something distant and far off. I'm not saying like life sucks, but we're all gonna fly away on a cloud someday. That is not the hope of the gospel. If you've been raised that that's the hope of the gospel, I'm sorry, you've been told wrong. Like that is not what Christians believe. The promise of God for eternal life is that we could know Jesus. And so it is something that is immediate. It is something that we can experience now, even in the middle of our lives, in the middle of our suffering. All we have and all we can offer to other people in the midst of the mystery of theodicy is another mystery. And that is the mystery of knowing God. But we have the mystery of knowing God to offer to people. That's all we have, but we have that, <laughs> which is a miracle. Paul says that it is precisely in our suffering that we come to know God. In Romans 8, he says that we are God's children and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. But we can't just kind of cognitively hold on to the story of Jesus' work on earth, like this brute fact, right? Like, like how I know that, I don't know, like some fact of history, or like which is the largest great lake, which I think is superior. Um, but I'm not even sure. We, we can't hold this like a mantra that we just sort of repeat to ourselves in the midst of suffering because that is somewhat unhelpful. When we're in deep grief, when we're in deep disappointment, when we're in deep doubt and the truth of the scriptures and the truth of the gospel sort of evaporates and feels hard to grab hold of, brute facts are too cold 
to be able to kind of capture our imaginations and our hearts and bring comfort. The story we live by is when we somehow enter into. We discover our smaller stories in this greater story of God and his church. And we do that through the practice through the practices and the prayers that we receive from those who've gone before us, from the practices and prayers we've received from the church. Um, my husband and I, years ago, hiked Mount Washington in New Hampshire. And if you've ever been to Mount Washington, it's this, it's this crazy place because it looks pretty calm, but the weather, it's, the, it's the most insane weather, like, in America, maybe on Earth. At one point, it had the ground wind speed record on the planet for the most wind. All the pictures that we have from being there, you can't see my face because my hair is just over my face. Um, and the weather changes. It's, and so you can go up, you can hike up um, on a sunny day, and within an hour, there's a blizzard. So because of this, people, people have gotten lost and hikers have gone out in the, there and um, gotten lost and died because the weather changes so fast. So what um, the good people of New Hampshire have done is if you hike up it, there's these giant cairns, just these huge, huge rock piles that are, I don't know, seven, eight feet in the air. Can't miss them. So the idea is that, and they're every sort of, I don't know, spaced, maybe 15, 20 feet apart. There, we're enough where the idea is, if, it go, if, if you're in a whiteout and things get really hard to see, if you can just follow the cairns, they lead you up the mountain to the shelter or down the mountain back to the shelter. They've left these there to say, when nothing else is clear, just do this. Just follow the cairns and you will have, you'll get back home. So I talk about the prayers and the practices of the church in this book as cairns, gifts of grace left to us by the church that kind of kept me in the way of Jesus. I could not pray. I was a priest who could not pray. It's a problem. It's like, it's like a teacher who lost their voice. It's, it's, it makes it hard to do the job. And when I say in the book, when I could not pray, the church said, here are prayers. When I could not believe, the church said, come to the table and be fed. When I could not worship, the church sang over me the language of faith. These gifts from our older brothers and sisters of prayer and worship are a way that the ancient church built cairns for us. And there's this gentleness to it of them saying, we know we know it is hard to believe. We know. We know that there will be times where you can't see anything and nothing feels clear, where your faith seems to drain away. And these are things that will keep you on the path. They will guide you home. They will show you the way. In some silent place in our heart. We can come to sense God's pleasure when things go well for us. We can think that God sees us and loves us when things seem to be going well. And 
the flip side of that is we sense his disapproval, if not outright abandonment, when things don't go well, when we're disappointed. This kind of births the species of Christian faith that wants resolution, it wants performance, it wants results. And we often have a hard time knowing how to face and help others face situations where suffering's not going to resolve anytime soon, where the burdens people carry will not be lifted, where there's not like a quick answer. We want suffering to kind of have this clear beginning, middle, and end, something we can sort of get through, this sort of tidy story we can tie up and testify about or whatever. And this is not new. This isn't just American. This is human. Martin Luther made this distinction between the theology of the cross and a theology of glory. He says in a theology of glory, in that way of sort of seeing the world, we think that God shows his trustworthiness by doling out pleasure and prosperity and freedom from suffering for the righteous. In contrast, he says, the theology of the cross discovers, Luther says, that God is hidden in suffering. It's counterintuitive. Suffering hurts. We kind of reflexively withdraw from it, which makes total sense. We don't want it. We don't want to have to feel the bad feelings, which is part, by the way, side note, that we, we need emotional discipleship, not just... And I don't mean emotional manipulation. I mean emotional discipleship. Not just kind of orthodoxy, believing the right things, or orthopraxis, doing the right things, but orthopathy, having a right internal state so that we can face the bad feelings that we spend so much of our life compulsively trying to escape from. And we cultivate all manner of addictions and distractions to avoid feeling these bad feelings. And we need to learn, by God's mercy, that we need to walk into these negative emotions and face the scariness of that and face the doubt and face the fear in that. Because we don't just meet Jesus in sort of emotional highs or in joy or ardent faith. So we need to be curious about the ways that Jesus is waiting for us, that he beat us there and is patiently waiting for us in the midst of sadness and disappointment and loneliness and even doubt. I want to tell you, um, to close the story of a man who was a youth minister. When the Soviets took over Romania in 1944, they began rounding up Christians and subjecting them to torture um, designed to make them repudiate the faith. And this man, George Calciu, I don't know if I'm saying his name correctly, but that's the best I can. George Calciu was an Orthodox priest. And during this time, he held a series of lectures on the basics of Christianity for Romanian youth. So he was arrested, and he was condemned to death. And while on death row, he realized that he was experiencing, this is what his biographer says, the deep presence of Christ and the suffering he was experiencing and and in every small blessing 
that he came across, whether it was the visitation by an insect in his cell or a passing conversation with the guard. All of these were things that he could be grateful for and find Christ's presence in. George Cascu was miraculously spared from death. He was released, but he was put into exile. So he was sent to the States to Florida, which I feel like, if you've got to be in exile, it's like, it's not the worst place to be in exile. Um, but, so he served a small parish in Florida for the rest of his life, and he was interviewed uh, later in his life about his time in prison after the war. And here's what he said. Christ did not come into the world to eliminate suffering. Christ did not even come into the world to explain it. He came to fill human suffering with his presence. That is why where suffering is great, there God is. There Christ is in us. If you want to feel the presence of God, go into the hospitals. There you will see the suffering of innocent children, the suffering of old people. The presence of God, the presence of Jesus Christ is in their suffering. When Christ came into the world and suffered, he suffered with me. He suffered with you. Can you imagine how much dignity he gave to human suffering to suffer with us, to fill our suffering with his presence? I love that he said how much dignity there is in human suffering. It's so counterintuitive. The place of weakness is strength. The place of strength is weakness. It's, it's so um, different than what we would expect. We are losing, I think, a generation of people because we and the world around them have convinced them and told them that God mostly just wants them to be happy and that the grace of God looks like privilege that blessing looks like something we, kind of a material object you can hashtag, or some kind of life with a beautiful spouse and a meaningful job and a cool apartment or, you know, well-adjusted children or a life of freedom you can travel in, whatever kind of your view of the good life is. We've confused that with grace. We've confused that with knowing God. And we have left people unprepared for when suffering awaits them. We have given them a theology of glory instead of a theology of the cross. We've told them that Jesus is a useful accessory in their privileged American lives. But Jesus promises that following him means that we will suffer. But he also came to fill our suffering with his presence. You have to have the bad feelings. You have to face your own suffering because that's the very place that God longs to meet you. That is a place of great dignity. That is the way that we know the comforter and the deep counter-cultural comfort that God gives to us in the midst of our suffering. And it's only when we receive the comfort of God in those deepest places of hurt and pain that we have any kind of hope to offer to other people. 
In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I pray. Amen.